0: This is history for the future. What we can learn from the TRC with Pippa Green. (laughs) Mohamed Faisal Randira is a medical doctor by training who has specialised in fields such as occupational health and HIV AIDS. He was appointed as a truth commissioner by President Nelson Mandela in 1995 and served on the Human Rights Violations Committee. Since the Truth Commission, he has served in various public capacities, including as Inspector General of Intelligence Services from 1999 to 2001. Randera, known by his second name, Faisal, has also been a member of the South African Centre for Survivors of Torture and has served as a health advisor to the Chamber of Mines. I spoke to him in his Parktown home and asked him what the major strengths of the TRC were. He says the intention of the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act which brought the TRC into being, was to provide as complete as possible a history of human rights violations between 1960 and 1994.
1: Naively, even I at that time thought that I was going to look primarily at the role of the apartheid state in fomenting the conflicts and and contributing largely to the conflicts of the past.
0: So, he says, the Commission had to look at all the players who had contributed to gross human rights violations during that period. That
1: was part of the mandate, because the, the Act did not say your responsibility is only to look at the perpetrators of human rights violations, i.e. the apartheid state. The Act actually talked about all players that contributed towards the complex of the past. And therefore, our understanding and our interpretation of that was to say yes, there were many players that, that participated in this period. Yes, overall there was the apartheid state and one, we couldn't forget that very major player in that and and the power and the forces that the apartheid state had at its, at its disposal but in taking on the political struggle against this this Apartheid state in taking on the liberation struggle the liberation movements in themselves took on responsibility that at times resulted in human rights violations.
0: The first hearings in Johannesburg took place at the Central Methodist Church in the city centre at the end of April. It included a range of testimonies, including from Howard Timo, the mother of Ahmed Timo, who supposedly fell to his death in 1971 from the 10th floor of security police headquarters, then known as John Forster Square. An inquest soon after ruled he had committed suicide, although his family always doubted this. And I asked what happened. And they told me that
1: my son had jumped from the 10th floor of John Foster Square
0: and that had died.
1: They, I, I told them
0: that I do not believe that my son had committed suicide. On the second day of the hearing, says Randera, President Mandela's office called to say he was going to come listen to the testimonies.
1: And... Purely by coincidence, um, when he arrived the the person who was talking about what had happened to him and to his family, to his brother, was someone who had been part of the ANC in exile, had been arrested by the ANC. His brother had actually died in one of the camps in, I think it was in Quattro, and that evening's news again focused completely on this particular, although there were, I think, eight or ten people that we had listened to on that particular day. And you you will recall that, you know, when the Motsunyani Commission came out with its report and uh, President Mandela, as president of the ANC at at that particular time, was asked what the ANC was going to do about this, and his response was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, uh, that only a, a, a democratically elected government will be able to decide how we deal with, with, the, with the human rights violations of the past.
0: The Matsuanyani Commission, set up by the ANC before the democratic elections of 1994, found that people held in ANC camps had been tortured and that specific individuals were responsible. Mandela had said subsequently that only a democratic government could decide what should be done with perpetrators of human rights violations during the apartheid era.
1: One has to ask, was that the intention of the legislature? When they discussed, debated, you know, all those many hours that resulted in the in the legislation on Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was it their intention, actually, to to bring about what the liberation movements uh, did uh, during this period, because again, when you you will recall that when we handed over our report in the weeks preceding that, there was a challenge from F.W. de Klerk on the finding that that, uh, we had made against him. And then there was a challenge by the ANC itself on the the findings that had been made against certain people in certain Leaders of the ANC, Um, and of course that caused a, a, a fair amount of ructions within within the commission at the time. And associated with that was this whole debate about were we now, in our report, coming out almost or at least the interpretation that would come out was that we were putting an even handedness between the apartheid state and the liberation movements.
0: But this was not the case, he says.
1: I don't think we could have been any clearer in the report that apartheid was a, a crime against humanity, that, uh, that uh, the forces and the power that the state had ha- took on the greatest responsibility, that the racism was an ideology of the state, And it it then manifested in many other ways. So I I think our findings were very explicit.
0: The ANC went to court to try to block the TRC report when it came out, as did F.W. de Klerk. Both lost.
1: And there was a whole question of collective responsibility. Remember, the Act was very, very clear that when it came to responsibility, there could not be a collective responsibility. There had to be individual responsibility and the role that those individuals played.
0: Senior members of government in the ANC also asked for the opportunity to respond to findings. This was in contrast to earlier interventions by members of the old apartheid forces who tried to obstruct the hearings before they even began.
1: Very early on in the life of the commission, when we had our first hearing, prior to that there had been uh, a, an interjection by certain members of the South African police force who felt that they had not been given sufficient warning about what people who were coming to the hearings, the survivors, the victims were going to say about them. And there were a number of rulings that we uh, challenged. And finally, the, the, the decision, the court came up with the position that of course, where a finding was to be made, then it was only fair in terms of common law that the alleged perpetrator perpetrator, needed to be informed about who was making that allegation, what was the incident concern, etc, etc. So I think it was on the basis of that that, you know, had my own position in that discussion was to say, had we given uh, people where findings were being made, whether from, from the ANC side or from the from the Nationalist Party side or the Apartheid Forces side, had yeah, they been given sufficient opportunity to raise their concern and to give an explanation, another explanation, because I think the act allowed that in my in my view. Um, I was outvoted in that in that particular discussion, and so I had to accept it as, as such, but that was my position at
0: the time, yeah. But notwithstanding the legal challenges, was it effective to allow people a voice through public hearings?
1: I mean, remember the experience prior to the South African TRC, and I, and I speak particularly about what happened in Argentina, in Chile, in uh, some of the other Latin American countries, was one way, although a commission had been appointed to look at atrocities of the past, It was all held behind locked doors.
0: There had never been a commission so open in its pursuit of the truth about the atrocities of the past. But could we have not gone the route of straight prosecutions?
1: Should we have, in retrospect, gone the Nuremberg route and had prosecuting trials rather than a truth and reconciliation commission? I totally support today that where a process of 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 truth and reconciliation takes place in any one country that people should be given the opportunity to speak about the human rights violations that had taken place to them or to their loved ones now having said that remember there was a certain bias that in into the public hearings Um, not everybody who came and made a statement of, for, for instance, if you take the 21,000 human rights violations statements that were made to the TRC, only a fraction of those people actually got to public hearings.
0: But mostly people could not just arrive at hearings and make statements. Each hearing was preceded by investigation and research.
1: In any area where we believe that uh, human rights violations had taken place and that was based on the research that our researchers had done, on press, uh, media information, all sorts of other pieces of information that came through, we would first go and speak to different groupings about what the TRC was, was doing and the processes of the TRC, both political groupings, civil society groupings, church groupings, trade unions, etc., etc. And then our statement takers would go into the areas, take statements from people, and once the statements were brought in, the respective officers would sit down and the commissioners and committee members of the Human Rights Violations Committee would sit down and decide who would appear in the Human Rights Violations Committee hearing
0: at most the committee could listen to only about 10 people a day and each hearing took about 3 or 4 days
1: take an example if we take what the the central methodist church hearings there were some 200 statements that had come in before we actually made a decision besides the ones that came in during the time of the hearings themselves and there was no way we could actually take all of that so there were criteria laid down that said you know we're going to actually take people that would be representative of violations that took place that where possible we would always include uh, some cases where the story related to a liberation movement or UDF issue as such um, that the issue of black and white would would come in that we would try and include other other uh, representatives from from other groupings making up the South African population as such, um, age, sex, all of those were considered when we made the decision to, to have human rights violations hearings and who would be included. But I'm very clear in my mind that there was a uh, uh, a significant portion of people who felt that they had been excluded. Although we made findings and we looked at every statement that came through at the end there was unhappiness at the time in every hearing that we had that people had been excluded.
0: And often it was the hearings that brought out what people were saying. Often it was a case of the language the statements were taken down in and the quality of interpretation. It was only when people actually spoke at the hearings that a fuller picture emerged.
1: And certainly I mean one then heard a very different story emerging Coming out of what was often a two or three sentence statement, I, I certainly have no hesitation in saying that we made the right decision to have the public hearings. Yes, of course, we were criticised at the time that we that we were that we perhaps were uh, um, providing a platform for people to make all sorts of allegations. That it, it it was posturing that it was it was taking place, that we were fast becoming uh, commissioned. So there were all of those criticisms that came out mm. at the beginning, and certainly you know if you recall, I mean, to hear a mother coming and talking about what had happened to a child, I think if the cameras had zoomed in on of course they, they zoomed in on the Arch and, 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 and Alex, but if, they, if the cameras had zoomed in on, on every one of us, there were tears beginning to well in, 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 all, in every one of us. And yes, after the, the, the media coverage of that and the criticism that came out, perhaps we all became a little tougher and harder in, which, in the better in which we, we responded.
0: The TRC report commented that relatively few people attended the hearings and then they were mainly from the black community.
1: Very few people came from the white community, very few people came from the Indian community. In the Western Cape it might have been different that uh, uh, where, where hearings took place in in predominantly coloured areas that coloured people turned up for the hearings. And we commented on it. One aspect that we we cannot ignore is that I think different communities were, and particularly the South African white community, was perhaps feeling that everything was moving too fast, that they were fast becoming the the torchbearers of uh, all perpetration that had taken place, that their silence had been one of collusion and felt under attack.
0: Yet around the country, the media coverage, especially on radio and TV, indicated that people were listening and watching.
1: Unlike any other commission that I know of, the South African Truth Commission broke new ground in terms of taking what was happening. And, you know, uh, at the time that we were writing the report and making the findings, our feeling was that, you know, because we had involved society right from the moment Bill. I mean you I was really taken aback that first day that we went to the archer's house when we were appointed and he invited all of us to to, to go and meet there and the media contingent that was there I think we, we fast became aware that you know this was going to be very different to what we thought was going to happen because my reading clearly indicated that if you looked at at commissions particularly the ones that were really uh, famous Chile and, and Argentina, there was very little coverage that took place.
0: So in a sense, the South African TRC opened a new chapter, not only in the country, but in the world, about how to deal with past conflicts. But are we further today than we were then? He answers by going back to the debates around the Truth Commission at its inception.
1: Parliament actually spent a great deal of time looking at what they wanted coming out of this TRC process. Although the... IFP initially did not vote in support of the legislation, every other party supported it. But when we came to the actual process of wanting to gain support for the TRC, even before we were about to start doing our work, there were a number of leaders, church leaders, who wrote letters. To the arch, imploring him to actually advise the government that this was going to be a process that will bring about greater divisions in our society, and and there were then other voices that said that you know this was going to be a cleansing process, that it was going to be a process that would only right. And, and talk about the, the history of the ANC and, and and the great contributions that the ANC had been had made to this uh, to where we had got to in 1994. The people who had been uh, nominated and finally uh, appointed by the president were all ANC hacks in one way or the other. So even before we had started, there was a view that was beginning to emerge and. I don't know whether the Center for Reconciliation in Cape Town has ever looked at that and said, you know, how much did this begin to influence various communities in South Africa that they should not be participating in the process? How much was it? The the fear that people had during apartheid, the Swart Khafar Mm. fear that that we would this was another version of that. And so when the clerk came, his half-hearted uh, apology, and even since then, his, his, the position that is, that is taken in the foundation and at international uh, panels, that apartheid was not a crime against humanity, again, to my mind, contributes to where we are today.
0: There were a few leaders of the apartheid era, such as Leon Vessels and Rolf Meyer, who apologised for apartheid.
1: But on the whole, there was a lot of denial, obfuscation. uh, The fact that, you know, even post the recommendation, so few people have been prosecuted across the spectrum. Uh, But primarily, the fact that The SANDF hardly came and and took responsibility that we had to ask them several times to make a submission to the TRC. The the police similarly except that there were individuals who then actually broke rank and, and came to the Amnesty Committee. I think all of that continues to contribute towards a lack of social cohesion in our society. That perhaps we've moved from reconciliation to what is it that makes a society comfortable and happy when it comes to that issue of social cohesion.
0: And so 21 years into democracy, and 17 years after the TRC issued its first report, he says, the Commission undertook the responsibility of trying to edge the country towards more cohesion. He reads out from some of the TRC's recommendations on reconciliation.
1: We said very clearly that it's a process vital and necessary for enduring peace and stability, and we're inviting fellow South Africans to accept our need for healing. Uh, I I think if we go through each one now, reach out to fellow South Africans in a spirit of tolerance and understanding. Work actively to build bridges across divisions of language, faith, and history. Um, strive constantly in the process of transformation to to be sensitive to the needs of those groups which have been particularly disadvantaged in the past, specifically women and children, encourage a culture of debate.
0: All of these were strong reflections on the TRC process, one that went on way after its envisaged term, partly to allow perpetrators to apply for amnesty.
1: What we were saying at the end of that period was in that time that we had yes. The manner in which we went about was always not to build divisions in our society, but to build the reconciliation of our society. Because I don't think there was a commissioner, except for that initial period, who didn't strongly believe in what we were doing and why we had taken on that responsibility.
0: Some of the commissioners stayed on to work with government on the recommendations. But in the end, the commission had to wrap up.
1: On reconciliation, that baton was passed on to government, was passed on to civil society, was passed on to uh, particularly the churches to, to continue the, the process of reconciliation. And I don't think, having, having been involved now in so many areas in the mining industry, in education, in correctional services, that that has taken place.
0: Even the ANC has not made a great push towards better social cohesion, he says.
1: If we then say that the ANC gave birth to this Truth and Reconciliation Act, why did we not see greater involvement of the ANC? Uh, besides the submissions that were made and people who came to speak to the submissions...
0: He says few leaders of the 1960s came to speak about their experiences and although senior military leaders such as Abu Bakr Ismail testified about the Church Street bombing, there were not many who came forward to help a country understand its past. Did they perhaps think it was not an appropriate forum for leaders? There were many perspectives, he says.
1: One of the strongest was that we got involved in the liberation movement because we wanted to see change in South Africa we didn't want to necessarily come and speak about what we as individuals because once we had joined the ANC it was about the collective will and collective will and collective motivation that took us forward and we didn't you know the TRC was asking individuals to come and speak about their experiences so many people actually did not come because of this you know there's the the part of me that says yes the people who were within the external ANC movement I'm not so sure so much about the inside whether they they became part of new government forces they were now developing the policies and the rules and and they were now the new power brokers of of society they were controlling the reins of power, uh, and how much did that contribute towards saying no? As long as the ANC actually makes the submission and we have the deputy president and other ANC leaders, we're satisfied with what they say.
0: The TRC even approached some of the ANC branches to urge their involvement in the process, mostly unsuccessfully. All of this contributes to the central question.
1: Are we a society that is comfortable and happy with itself? I don't think so. I think the, the schisms within our our society still remain.
0: Racism is still a major force and the society is still riven.
1: The strength that apartheid brought in dividing our societies in that we were forced to live in certain areas. That our thinking became one that said, you know, when it came to education it would be important that white people are the teachers and the trainers, that uh, the management groupings came from a certain... All of this has taken time to break down. I don't think we're even there at the present time. If If I look at my experience in the mining industry, in eight years of working there, it's a very robust environment. But 20 years after democracy, If I go to any mine and I go go into the corporate offices of any mining company, do I see very different things happening? I don't think so. It's a lengthy process of transformation that's taking place. I mean, the the recent uh, publicity around the Kuro schools and the prejudices that come out indicate that you know whenever there's a, a racist incident that takes place against a black person the media covers that fully and of course the voices that come out on on radio will will become very critical about how little that has changed that, that part of racism has changed but there is also racism in the reverse we we don't give sufficient voice to so i just think that Although we had this very lengthy process of truth and reconciliation, I think there were many contributing factors that continue to play out in present-day society.
0: For his part, Randira tried to help unite the medical profession. Most of the doctors in the medical association accepted that although black doctors were in the minority for historical reasons, it was important to give them 50% representation in the leadership structures.
1: But you know, very soon in the conversations that took place, what the voices that were coming out was, why should black doctors who have a minority representation have a 50% representation on the board? so people forget very quickly and the whole constitutional argument comes in about you know all people are born equal and and every citizen has the same rights as everybody else which is true you're not going to argue that in court but in terms of the everyday perspective of ordinary south africans do we see that no i don't see that
0: The stark divisions between black and white continue, he says. When he was on the sanitation task team, Randi recovered the western, eastern and northern Cape, where he says about six million people live in informal settlements.
1: Kids actually growing up with their only experience being one that their home was this boards of, of wood or corrugated iron and people saying, you know, we've been waiting for all this time to get out. And despite the fact that we've built 3.5 million houses since 1994 and all the other contributions that Treasury has made towards the housing of people, there are still all of these people living in under the most atrocious conditions, that they, their everyday experience is one of negativity rather than positivity.
0: And as long as they are out of sight, it's not a pressing issue.
1: The, the big mistake that we've made in, in terms of human settlements whereas previously it was housing, is that we we did reproduce the architecture of apartheid and the divisions of apartheid. I mean, we, we built houses for people who couldn't afford housing, but we put them right out in the periphery where there was no jobs to be found, where there was no social amenities, where they had to actually then open up tuck shops and, and spaza shops where, sure, people who were coming in from outside who had the motivation... Felt that they could actually make a, a living out of it by by staying in their shop and working 18, 20 hours a day, and then of course communities start attacking uh, for for different reasons. Uh, and, and we've seen the one area of of the failure of reconciliation and acceptance of other people, whether black or white. The xenophobic attacks have been primarily against black people. I think there are many reasons that we don't, we haven't done this. And, you know, I used the expression social cohesion early on, because when Paul Mashatile was minister of arts and culture, he started this project on social cohesion, he invited a whole number of people, many people from the, from the commission to Cliptown where the inauguration took place and different communities were, were invited. But despite what we have seen since then, the 2008 uh, attacks, the ongoing debates in our society around racism, the ongoing attacks on on people from other parts of, of our continent and other parts of the world, that social cohesion project, in my view, it just hasn't taken off.
0: There have not been sufficient resources devoted to it and it's hard for civil servants to add it to their slate of responsibilities.
1: So, in retrospect, 17 years after, should we have just handed the the report over and said, thank you now, government, you are the custodian of the report and the recommendations? I think that was a, a weakness.
0: So what was the alternative?
1: What didn't happen is the institutionalization of of reconciliation or social cohesion in in all parts of our society. That could have only in, in many ways been done by setting up, yes, it, it could have actually led to more bureaucracy, but if it was outside government and uh, sufficient thought had been given to it, it could have worked and uh, I, I just think that The way we go about it today is not bringing about the results. So uh, whether it would have been a model that would have also been doomed to failure, I don't know. But uh, I think we should have tried it at the time.
0: What about the economic legacy of apartheid? How much does it contribute to the divisions in the country today?
1: The TRC had a special hearing on the, the business sector and how the business sector contributed towards the whole environment of human rights violations, either by omission or commission, right? If we look at the report, we say very clearly the business sector, like many other sectors that came to the TRC, did not take sufficient responsibility on what had happened during this period. Now, many people in, in recent times have called for an, for an economic CODESA. I must say I'm I'm coming around more and more in support. I mean, I thought that there were sufficient policy changes, legislation taking place within society over 20 years that would overcome that. But when I talk to people and my own experience in various B entities sitting on boards, makes me realise that you know I think there's a long way still to travel.
0: There have been ownership changes on the JSE and there have been examples in some industries, such as liquid fuel, where the complexion of ownership has changed due to legislation and the various mining and industry charters have been partially successful.
1: So the experiment has been a, a worthwhile experiment in my view because it still contributes towards uh, the relative peaceful society and democratic society that we live in, but I don't think it genders within the poverty-stricken groupings of South Africa, feeling that they are actually participating in this wealth creation that is taking place or is perceived to be taking place.
0: So what could the TRC have done better?
1: Although the TRC has been given lots of kudos, there were, there were many weaknesses in the, in, in the TRC process. And in a sense, that is then reflected in where we are today, you know, uh, I mean, two areas that we highlight in the report is that we did not have a special hearing on education, and yet education continues to be a a, a challenge in our society, and the role that municipalities played during the during the period of apartheid. We didn't we didn't cover that either. So I, I think, uh, given the time period that we had. We covered a great deal. We broke many new grounds. But sure, I mean, I, I think this is all in retrospect and, and we can all be wise in retrospect.
0: That was Dr. Faisal Randera, interviewed in Johannesburg on the 2nd of July, 2015. I'm Pippa Green in Cape Town. Produced by Jean-Michel, and thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzani Na, and credit to the SABC archive for the original sound from the TRC. You've just listened to History for the Future, what we can learn from the TRC. Keep listening for more insights into the state of reconciliation in South Africa, then and now.